0: For Christmas tide this year, we have chosen the theme Jesus entered our world and we enter theirs. The notion here is the classic Pauline um, notion of imitation. Uh, several times in Paul's letters to various people or churches, he uses this Greek word, mimeo, from which we get the word mimic. And the notion is that Paul and his contemporaries were trying to work out the stunning implications of God entering our world. Seems old hat to us after 2,000 years of reflection. But for them, they were trying to work out some pretty profound and significant stuff. What does this mean? What's it mean for us? What's it mean to mimic, to imitate Christ entering our world How is it that we enter theirs? And as I alluded to on Christmas Eve, part of the problem these days is that the world no longer feels like ours, especially if you're older than about college age, but certainly if you're a baby boomer and above, the world just doesn't feel like ours. One article I saw this week put it this way, that many older or traditional people grapple with the profound sense of unease about the direction of the country. There's a sense that things are slipping away from what once felt like right and normal. And many would like to turn back the clock to when they were younger, when the world seemed less complicated, when their values were their country's values. And so just note there, if you would, the emphasis on their country and a a certain set of values And there's a couple of really big assumptions there. And that is one, that everything was really working well for everybody. And that's perhaps not the case. And the other is that we should assume that things would stay stable. You know, Plato, who existed before Christ, told the story of a king who, when writing was invented, are you catching this? When writing was invented, This king deeply protested saying that people should not write for writing would weaken people's memory and that it would implant forgetfulness in human souls. Um, If you just think of, of the enormous transitions that have happened in human history, do you realize a simple thing like the plow, who no one knows who invented it, No one even knows exactly when. It's so old. Most historians think that it was probably invented in more than one place at one time, and it just sort of rose to prominence. But it literally changed everything. You could now produce food. You didn't have to just go out and find it, and pick it off a bush, or kill it. You could actually produce it. Changed everything. Think of the wheel. The light bulb. I mean, I'm not a Luddite, but I have times when I'm tired and wish we didn't have the light bulb, right? They they change everything. Wouldn't it just be nice sometimes if you just darkness fell in the winter and you got an especially long break after work? So you just think, I mean, we could just go on and on here about massive changes in human history. I my great-grandmother lived to 106. She used to tell stories about Jesse James. And I can remember, when I was really little, her lamenting how cars had destroyed culture. (laughs) How the automobile had just destroyed everything. I mean, that's in our lifetime. I remember as a little boy my great grandmother telling those stories. But I think what's happening today is the speed of change makes all this too hard for us to digest. That's what's different about our world. And it's where, like, as a pastor, I want to say you need to let yourself off the hook a little bit. That it's pretty natural for you to feel a little anxiety and to just kind of let yourself off the hook. In, in, In that way, we are living in an unprecedented day. I mean, take something as simple as texting and driving. I, I completely agree that we shouldn't. I completely agree with hands-off driving and all that. And I'm not somebody who's particularly attached to my phone. At least I think I'm not. Until when I'm driving, it does something. And it's the strangest thing. It calls to me in this way that I don't have language to describe. <laughs> I hate it. I mean, I hate that thing. I hate what it does to me in that moment. It's crazy. I mean, this is not at all funny, so please, please don't laugh. This is not at all funny. But just on Christmas Day, a father in San Diego walked off a cliff to his death, staring at his phone, just was not aware of where he was going, and walked off a 60-foot cliff, probably in La Jolla, to his death. We just are in the grip of something that is almost unspeakable. Pope Francis, in his message on Christmas, said that technological development hasn't been matched by development in human values and in the human conscience. And this, of course, has always been true. Every advance in technology has been a test of the human heart. Every advance in technology asks us this question What do you intend? So, with a wheel, you could intend to serve your village by using wheels to get game or berries back to the village. So, you could serve your village better. Or, if you intended, you could use wheels to pile rocks on and go stone somebody to death who you're miffed at. So every advance in technology asks human beings the question, the pope is right, a question that is essentially a deeply spiritual question, what do you intend? So what I want to do with Christmastide, I love this image, is help us think through What do we learn from Jesus entering our world in the manner in which he did it? What is the wisdom of God that lies behind that? And what can we learn from it to enter, quote, their world or the world today? And the first thing I want to suggest is to have healthy and fruitful conversations about faith, we need to learn to feel safe and secure and peaceful in this new world what the author Thomas Friedman sorry Edwin Friedman called non-anxious differentiation so I mean I'll just speak for myself here for a moment I am completely a Jesus freak but I'm able to be that in a non-anxious way with reference to religious pluralism it just is what it is And I'm not going to make it go away and every preacher in America could stand up and say the same thing and religious pluralism is not going to go away it's here to stay because we now live in this global world in which we can and pretty much do know everything we want to know and so now we know the world isn't what you know fathers know best and leave it to beaver and that whole post-World War II you know kind of 1950s thing said it was we all know it's not that and that horse, is, that horse is not going back in the barn. And so we have to find a way for non-anxious differentiation while staying connected to this broken and pluralistic world. When Billy Graham was a young evangelist um, at the time working for Youth for Christ, he used to preach under this huge banner that said, anchored to the rock. Got that? Geared to the times. And that has been, that's the impulse from Jesus to Paul to us. That's always been the missionary impulse of the church. Simultaneously being totally self-differentiated. I'm a follower of Jesus. That means I'm not a follower of 99 other religious people. I have chosen. I have differentiated myself. But in a non-anxious way so that I'm able to simultaneously be geared to the times or stay in that conversation, I use the word conversation there in quotes, stay in that tension that we just heard Dennis read from the Gospels. We find a way of staying in that, acknowledging that what God has done in coming to us as Christ and the way in which he came to us, this is what allows us to know who we are and what we're made for in God. So let me say that again. The way that God came to us, in in a sense, weak and vulnerable and in response to the broken world, that suggests how it is that we enter their world. It's something like, if I had to just pick a couple of words, it's like responsive agency. And what I mean by that is, this isn't our initiation. We're entering a story that's been going on for a long time, and so in that sense, it's responsive. It's agency in the sense that this isn't our idea. We're an agent. The biblical term is we're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And we're then continuing the movement, you might say, that this image suggests, the movement towards broken humanity. Well, the difficulty today is, is that the world thinks it's right and that religion is what's broken so then, what is apologetics? Like when I was 19 and, and a new Christian, you know, we had Josh McDowell, and we had uh, the Bible Answer Man, Walter Martin. You know, there was a certain, you know, apologetics had a certain sort of almost like simplicity to it in the sense of we knew what it was and, and how to do it. We were basically you know, making arguments. But what is apologetics in a day when, when, A, everyone has access to the answers if they want them, Click, click, click. They're there. Now, I know, you know not, every, not every site out there is trustworthy, but you can find about 500 trustworthy sites if you just wanted to click in. How can I know the Bible's real? You'll find 500 to 1,000 reliable things. Now, you'll find some unreliable things, but I'm just trying to get you to think, what is apologetics when A... Everyone has access to all the answers if they want them. And B, they think there is no answers. And C, if there is one, the church doesn't have it. So what is apologetics in a day like that? What's apologetics when people think that it's the church precisely that's harming humanity? And it's religion that needs to be done away with. Well, Paul is living in a very similar tension to what we read in the Gospels. Um, reading First and Second Corinthians, scholars think that there was, could have been three to as many as five Corinthian letters. No one, of course, can know for sure. Um, but Pauline scholars will at least agree that there was more than the two we have in our Bible. And listening to this um, Corinthian corpus of stuff is like listening to one side of a phone conversation. And so we hear Paul wrestling with these people in this church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, well, it does in 2 Corinthians too, but often what Paul's doing is he talks to these people. He's both articulating his rights as an apostle and defending them as one who has seen the risen Lord. That was always his trump card. I have seen and was commissioned by the risen Lord. And so he's articulating and defending these gospels I mean, sorry, these uh, rights. but catch this. Then giving them up. He, he articulates them. He defends that he has them, only so he can say, but my, out of my love for you, please, look at me. I give up my privileged position. And this is what I think is one of the big turns for American Christianity today. Post-World War II and up to about 5 or 10 years ago, we had a privileged position in society. And the choice that lies before us now, if we're going to enter our world, is to defend and define and protect a previous reality and hope that we can stake out that turf or give that up, realizing that it's gone anyway, and enter their world as servants who gives up their rights. This is what Paul means when he says, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all. But look at your bulletin. I want you to see the next three words. Please look at your bulletin. I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all. What are the next three words? Intentionality, purpose, thoughtfulness. He was engaged in something. He knew what he was up to. I didn't voluntarily become a servant because I was weak. Listen to me. Or because I thought Bill Maher was winning. I didn't become a servant because something was stolen to me by the left. I didn't give up my rights because I couldn't think of anything else to do. I gave them up in order to reach a wide range of people. Paul was a deeply thoughtful person. Whatever else you might think of Paul. Paul. He was a deeply thoughtful person and highly intentional. And his sense of himself, this is where I get irritated with people thinking, well, the Bible doesn't say anything or the Bible doesn't mean anything. Come on, Paul was at least as smart as you. And when you say to your wife, "Um, I'm taking the car keys in order to go to the store, that Paul has at least your capacity to explain himself. And then when he says stuff like this, this corresponds to something true in his heart. I voluntarily gave up my privileged position as the only one living on earth who had seen the risen Lord the way I did. The only one commissioned by the risen Lord in the way that I was commissioned. And I'm giving all that up in order to reach a wide range of people. But then he's like, he catches himself, you know, again, he's so logically like he catches himself and he says, but I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ and and that's our work for next week. But he says, here's our work for this week. I entered their world and I tried to experience things from their point of view. And then Paul lists, just sort of not exhaustively, of course, but he just kind of lists, this is what I mean. Meaning, to really scrupulously religious Jews, I tried to experience the coming of Christ from their point of view, and how would they have understood this? To the non-religious Gentiles, I tried to put myself in their head and their heart and try to understand how they would have understood this. Meticulous moralists, think of that as like the right-wing Jewish sects, the ones who are the most, think of like fundamentalists today. To the fundamentalists, I tried to enter their heart and head and understand the world from their point of view. The loose living immoralists, think of like the Gentile left, you know? The Epicureans, the people who thought that, you know, what it meant to be human was just experience everything you possibly could, taste, see, touch, you know, that whole thing. Paul said, I entered their world to the defeated and the demoralized. That was the weak and the marginalized of society. And Paul says, I tried to get in their heart and feel what they felt tried to experience things from their point of view. Now let me say something to you, not as Pastor Todd, but as Professor of Evangelism Todd. Here is the common reaction to anybody, most everybody, younger than a boomer, and certainly anybody, almost everybody in their 20s and into their 30s who are outside the church. Here it is. You don't know me. You have no idea about my life and what I've been through, And furthermore, you're not really interested in me. You only want want to convert me to your religion or to your point of view so you can have your life back. What you really want is the childhood of your youth. Or what you really want is your country back. You don't really have any interest in me. This is what virtually every young person says back to the kind of people, sociologists of religion, who study these kinds of things that I study. That that is a great snapshot. And we have this incredible antidote standing before us in Paul of, no, I entered their world. Well, what could that mean? And I just want to say three quick things. The first one is love. They're going to have to know that we will their good, that they're not pawns in our game, whether it's on the religious right or the religious left, the political right, the political left. They're not pawns in our game that their basic point of reference as a human being is with reference to God, not to a country, not to a nation state, not to a political party, not to an era of history. They don't exist in reference to those things. They exist in reference to God, God who created them and God who is redeeming them and God who is making into them an eternal people who will rule and reign with him in all the heavens and all the earth forever and ever. Can you hear the transcendence in that? How it transcends plow and will, wheel and fire and iPhones, it transcends all of that and, catch, and simultaneously catches all of that up into it and makes it into what God wants. And so if, if we are going to faithfully enter people's world today, they have to know that we love them, that we will their good. And the second thing I want to commend to you is Curiosity. And just drop judgmentalism and become curious. How did you get here? What's your story? And I've asked hundreds of young people that question. And you can bet there is a story about my uncle abusing me. Or my father was a pastor and blah, blah, blah. Or my youth pastor did this to me. There is always a story. And if we can have a loving curiosity, then we can enter their world and hear their story and find out how they got there. And that then implies the third thing, which is listening. Now, I know that when we think of evangelism, we tend to think of preaching, and fair enough. uh, There is a role for preaching. But when we're talking... In sort of personal evangelism, I think listening takes front and center. Listening as an act of love, as an act of generosity, as an act of space making, it's not compromise. After the power of persuasive listening, there will always be a time to talk. Because once someone knows we will their good, and once someone knows we actually are curious about them and we want to know their story, then the time will come when they will ask you, what's your story? How did you get here? What are your points of reference? And then you get to witness. For three or four years, I have been like totally frustrated at myself because I've had this vision called, at first in my mind, it popped into my mind is what I was calling trust and respect weekends. I think now that's too big. Maybe we need to start with trust and respect dinners. But my vision is, we have a church full of highly educated Christians, um, authors and professors and spiritual directors and psychologists. And uh, this is a church that is uncommonly full of those kind of people. And I'm wondering, what if we just started with some dinners, where we took spiritual directors, for instance, in our church, who are trained to listen to people? Are you feeling me here? Trained to listen to people? Trained to be curious about people's stories? What if we had just a dinner party? With four or five of them and four or five people who are totally confused about religion and God and Christianity. And we just listened to them with curiosity and said to them, you can trust this space. Nothing you say here will will leave. We respect you and your story. If you have hard things to say, you can say them. If you have questions that you think you could have never asked in a church, you can ask them here. This is a place of trust and respect. So I stand before you, you've got to hold me to this, and vow that in 2016 we will start this. We will start some trust and respect dinners or breakfasts or weekends or whatever they turn out to be so that we can learn what it means to enter their world. So let me say this as we um, conclude. So we live in this world where change is happening at this Ever increasing pace. I mean, you do know, don't you, that the best and brightest minds in Washington and the best and brightest minds in Northern California, if you get them, you know, get enough wine in them and get them being honest, they will tell you that they don't even know where this is going. That there's some sense in which the Jurassic Park thing is true. It's not entirely true, but it's somewhat true. No one knows where this is going. And no one knows exactly how to what's reining it in appropriately, what's reining it in too much. So we live in this time where it just seems out of control. But hear this. The scriptures say God has put eternity in the hearts of human beings. God has placed, by definition, sort of in the spiritual DNA of every human being, is transcendence. It might be deeply buried under having every kind of human experience someone can have. And and this is what would explain um, much of human brokenness when it comes to addiction. This is what explains much of human brokenness when it comes to sexual deviations of whatever kind, is the pursuit of just feeling something real. But the scriptures say God has put eternity in the hearts of human beings, and this is what causes, I think, the great psychological and spiritual gulf that we see today, is that we go to all kinds, as a a culture, at least here in the Western world, In the developed world, we go to all kinds of levels to suppress this consciousness, that we actually belong to a transcendent order of things. And so the big gap between trying to experience something that would make us alive while suppressing the very thing that would allow us to know we are alive, this is what leads to the dark misgivings that something is missing. It's what produces this void that everyone talks about that we long to fulfill in whatever way, and here's what's different today, one of the things, is that now it's just not only okay, but it's just celebrated to just fill that void according to your present system of desires. Don't wonder about your desires. You wouldn't want to challenge them. What you want to do to be really human is fulfill them. And that just contributes daily to this deep psychological disturbance. So this sounds like something like you might, you know, you might hear an angry fundamentalist say or something. But what, if, but what if this is true? What if when Jesus said things like this, they corresponded to truth? Like deep, spiritual, psychological truth. Maybe you could wonder with me for a moment what Jesus might have meant when he said... You're deceived by the father of lies. What could have you meant? This sounds like an angry fundamentalist, doesn't it? You know, just banging on or something. But I wonder what Jesus would have meant. You are deceived by the father of lies. Or what might have Paul meant when he wrote in Romans that you're slaves to sin? You think you're choosing it. But actually, trying to fill that void has enslaved you. You're actually not choosing it. You've become a slave to it. What could those things mean? And if they mean something, then hear Jesus saying, I don't know, 28 years or so from this picture. Think of Jesus looking at a crowd of people. Knowing that they're deceived by the Father of lies and enslaved to sin, and hear, them, hear Jesus say, "Come unto me, all you who labor in her, trying to fill that void and loaded down with heavy psychological and spiritual burdens. Come, follow me, and you will find rest for your souls." For unlike being slaves to filling that void, my yoke is easy. I can hear Jesus kind of thinking, I know this is counterintuitive. Right? Can you hear Jesus? I I know this is probably counterintuitive to you because everybody thinks I'm the hyper-religious guy. But counterintuitive it may be, but actually if you come follow me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The good and right life is actually the easy life the life of humility and generosity and and giving and love, that's actually the easy life. Everybody thinks it's hard, like it's something to achieve. No, that's the easy life. That's life of freedom and joy and openness. Come follow me, Jesus said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I knew this would be a little bit of a light crowd this morning, but you guys will have bragging rights, because this has never happened in the six year history of Holy Trinity Church. You ready for this? Get out your iPhone. Come on, get it out or whatever you got. Get out your device. Seriously, get it out. Put it on your lap. Let's go. This is the first in Holy Trinity history. And some of the Luddites say, I don't have it. I left it in my car. I'm just kidding. So I, I bow before all of you who left it in your car. But if you don't have your smartphone with you, get out your bulletin. Something to write with. And as we come to our quiet time this morning, I want you to think of somebody in your life. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody who works with you on campus or in a cubicle at work. Maybe it's somebody you're seeing as a therapist or a director. I want you to think of somebody who's stuck in the way that we've been talking about this morning. Someone you'd like to see come to faith. I want you to write their name down in your phone. And I want to invite you on a journey with me now over the next seven or eight weeks through Christmastide and through Epiphany and to begin to wonder how you might enter their world. What would it be like to love, be curious, to listen? I want you to begin this week to pray and so that now through Epiphany together we would begin to engage in the spiritual practice of entering their world. Spiritual practice of presence, of love, curiosity, listening, of entering their world and trying to experience things from their point of view. And just gently seeing where these conversations might lead. Maybe in this quiet moment now, as you've written that name down, Just have a moment of prayer for them.